Gideon, guys. I'm Johnny Hedgepeth, and this is the podcast where usually Travis Walash and I are breaking down every episode of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. That's on hiatus, Gideon gang. And it's been a while. It's been since before the holidays. And uh, the show is back, and I'm so happy it's back because I'm so happy to have our guest. It's Russ Burlingame. Welcome to the show, Russ. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Oh man, it's so happy! I'm so happy to have you. And everyone, uh, Russ is currently in the process of writing a book about legends. And what's it called again, Russ? Uh, Time to be Heroes, and uh, the subtitle is a totally unofficial oral history of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Oh wow! And so, and, I'm sh- and I know you are doing a ton of media. And again, thanks for doing my silly, silly yeah, little show. But so I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but I want to get it out of the way. So what led to you writing this Legends book? What gave you the idea that this is my next project? It was very, it was, it was kind of circuitous, honestly. Um, so my first book, I wrote an oral history of the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats movie, which was like a box office disaster that then became a cult classic over time. And I, I, as I was doing this, I started to make a list of other things that might be fun to do a similar project for. And uh, some of them I know will never, ever happen. In fact, one of them I wanted to do uh, Hudson Hawk. And obviously, (laughs) you can't do that without Bruce Willis's participation. And Bruce is no longer capable of participating in such a project. Yeah, that's sad. Um, But like, so I had this list, I had a running list. And uh, one of the things on that list was Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I thought I would love to do a definitive history of Crisis that starts with the comics in the 80s. And then like the first third would be comics. The second third would be introducing the Arrowverse and all the other stuff that kind of makes cameos mm-hmm. there. And then the third part would be actually the Crisis TV event. And uh, started working on the Crisis book and a couple of things happened. First of all, uh, I just fell in love with talking about legends. Like in my little chapter, it's supposed to be like a chapter on each of the other shows. And uh-huh. it's like, I do all these interviews about legends. And I'm like, at one point I was listening to the legends mixtape and I, uh, <laughs> I noticed that a friend of mine, Jess Harnell, uh, provided the singing vo- voice of Elvis Oh, in person of the Death Totem. I know Jess Arnell. Yeah, he's an Animaniac. <laughs> of course, I would. Okay, yeah. you were talking to a hardcore geek, cartoon watching, voice acting. I'm a voice actor nerd. Yeah, Jess. Oh yeah, Jess is amazing. Yeah, he's he's incredible, and he's such a sweet guy. And so, uh, what happened was that when I realized it was him doing Elvis, I was like, hey would you talk to me for this book I'm writing? And says, yeah, of course. And so we jumped on the phone, we started talking. And he's like, so what's this book about? And I immediately was like, this one random episode of Legends is going to have nothing at all to do with Crisis. And so I was like, you know what's going to happen is uh, after I'm done with my Crisis book, this is going to be for the next book. I just, I wanted to talk to you. And so he's like, awesome, let's do it. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, George Perez, who was the artist on the original Crisis on Infinite Comics, mm-hmm. passed away. And so I didn't feel right bugging his friends and family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or anecdotes. 
And I know that everybody, you know, everybody has great George stories and, and everybody would love to share them. And that's going to happen. I still have not shelved the, the, the crisis book. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that I was getting all excited about legends and I knew that I was going to do a legends book down the line. I just, I could feel it. And then I, uh, George passed away and then legends was canceled. And yeah. I was just like, I just got to do this. This is what I'm going to do. And so uh, I'm exclusive at my day job to Paramount who owns comicbook.com. And mm -hmm. so I had to jump through some legal hoops. Uh, it was a lot harder for one reason or another to get the crisis book approved than it was to get the, le the uh, or to get the legends book approved than it was to get the crisis book approved. Um, really? Took, yeah. I And here's the funny thing. Originally, my plan was I'll pitch crisis. They'll probably say no, because like the only reason they would say no is because they interpret a conflict of interest. And because I do cover the Arrowverse and I still cover Superman and Lois for my day job, uh, I thought, yeah, they'll probably say there's a conflict of interest. Here. I don't think that there is, but I, they'll probably say it. But I got to give it a try. It's a big swing. And so I prepared two different pitches. I prepared the crisis pitch and then i prepared uh hudson hawk and i thought what will happen is they'll tell me no on crisis and i'll just immediately hand them hudson hawk mm -hmm. and i don't have to wait and write a new pitch and all this kind of stuff i, I, I was going to be really smart about it and i handed them the crisis thing and like three days later they were like oh it's good to go wow and then with with the legends book i thought it was going to be super easy you like, think it'd be the other way around it's taking a chapter out of the other book and just expanding it. Uh, but for whatever reason, it was like months and months before I heard back. It's funny. I went on, I went on Carrie's show and or Kari and yeah, Carrie, I, yeah, she's a sweetheart. She's the best, but I, I went on her thing and talked about the fact that I was doing this book. And by then I had still not gotten official word from Paramount. So at one point it was like, well, I opened my big mouth, and so <laughs> if, uh, if it falls <laughs> apart, it's all on me. Um, but so that was the weird serpentine path by which I ended up writing the Legends book, is that I started writing a crisis book, and then just over time, it just became clear that, no, what, what you're supposed to be doing right now is the Legends book. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to thank the fine folks at Paramount. I'm a, I'm a hardcore Trekkie. And uh, the current season of Picard is outstanding. And Lower Decks is maybe my favorite show on television right now. Mm -hmm. That's still on TV. So I'm glad I'm glad it all worked out. But you brought up Crisis. And I'm glad you brought up that you, uh, you are a senior staff writer. You're not just at mm -hmm. comicbook.com. You're a senior staff writer. Yeah, and... I'm the old guy. I've been there since there was like 13,000 people reading us. <laughs> wow, wow. Oh, hey, I read you guys. You know, it's it's so funny to know when I looked, I'm like, wait, comicbook.com, that rings a bell. And then I look it up and like, yeah, stupid. You look at this almost every day. I've I've been I've been reading you and didn't know it for us. It's so. funny because I've been here for a really long time. And uh seven years ago I moved from the place where we had been living in Binghamton up here to Syracuse. And the first inkling I had that like, oh, we've really broken through in a mainstream way. Because obviously I knew that the site was growing and like we had more money and we had more perks and more access. Um, but the first 
first time I knew that the site was really growing in uh, a, a meaningful way was I moved up here and as the cable guy is installing the, the T1 line for my office, um, he's like, oh, so what do you do? And I told him I work for comicbook.com. He goes, oh man, I love you guys. You get way too many emails. And in my head immediately, I was like, if he just said, I love you guys, that's, you know, you, that's small talk. You tell that to anybody. It's just blowing smoke potentially. Maybe. But as soon as he followed it up with, you send way too many emails. I'm like, yeah, like, that guy does subscribe to our email list. <laughs> way too many emails. <laughs> we aren't that anymore, I should say. But I, I, I remember having that conversation and I just immediately remember going like, yep, this guy's legit. <laughs> yep. Well, even more legit for me, uh, was when I saw that you used to write for Wizard because when I discovered Wizard, it was towards the beginning when it felt more outlaw, for lack of a yeah. better term. Like it felt like they didn't care who they pissed off and uh, it was a lot funnier. And then towards the end, as it got bigger, it got a little bit more corporate and, you know, they were working with all the major companies. Uh, that, that original sort of punk rock aesthetic uh, to wizard is what captured me and i mm -hmm. i got to a point where i wasn't reading comic books anymore but i still read wizard every month just so i knew what was going on so yeah that, wizard, that jumped out to me wizard uh, i was only there for a little bit i did my internship and then they liked me so i did some freelance work um but uh i had a similar experience with wizard i don't think i've ever been fully out of comics but there was definitely a point in time where i had dropped all of my big two comics and the only things i was reading were Strangers in Paradise by Terry Moore and mm -hmm. Eric Larson, Savage Dragon. And so the way that I was keeping up with Cape Comics was through Wizard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me uh, too. Uh, I, I've been in and out of comics uh, since I first got into comics. I was five years old. It was a, um, a copy of uh, Marvel Tales, the Spider-Man reprint book. Okay. And the, the Prowler was uh, the villain in it and right around that same time spider-man on the electric company the educational tv show yeah. uh, that i grew up with but what grabbed you what was the first comic book the first exposure to superheroes or comics and I, I assume when you were a kid what yeah. grabbed you and started this all i will say there's a lot of different answers because like i've just never not had comics in my life uh, my dad owned a grocery store oh. a mom and pop grocery store and so uh at the end of the month when you like tear the covers off and toss out the ones that don't sell yeah i used um, to buy those at a used bookstore yeah and my dad used to set them aside and like bring the ones that he thought were kid friendly home for me to read um and uh and so like i've always just there's always been comics um my family was like one of those, my family is weird because like we were always kind of broke when I was a kid, but my dad always really valued entertainment. Like, mm -hmm. and so uh, we had this thing, a capacitance electric disc player uh, or electronic disc. And uh, we just called it the disc player because we didn't know that years later there would be a million different things that play discs. Mm -hmm. uh, and CEDs are these giant, they're like the size of records that come in a plastic jacket. And you put the jacket into the disc player and it like grabs the disc out of the jacket and 
retract the jacket and it plays half the movie and then halfway through you have to flip it over and oh i remember those yeah in the early days of home video when when uh when vhs tapes like pre-recorded vhs tapes were still a hundred bucks a pop you could get cds and granted it's a much smaller library a lot more limitations the quality is not as good all that kind of stuff but like you could get cds pre-recorded cds uh, of your favorite movies for like 15 to 20 dollars and so when i was younger that was our primary entertainment and so my first kind of entry into superheroes of any kind was we had cds of superman the movie the 1960s spider-man animated series uh -huh. and cartoon and so i watched all of those religiously uh, as a kid, I didn't even realize that CEDs were like a weird thing that only, that only <laughs> my family had. Uh, I, I thought like we had that, and eventually we had that and a VCR, and we had that disc player till I was like 14. And so later in life, when I realized that like, oh, they only made 10,000 of those, and it was a disaster that ruined the company, <laughs> uh, I was like shocked because I was like, but that was, I, I always had one. Like I still have one. <laughs> and so it's part uh, of the collection. I, I I have a one that my it's from my grandparents and uh, the it needs a new belt but it has a brand new stylus everything's in great shape it's one of the Sears ones that they made in the first kind of generation when they didn't know that it was going to be a failure and so they built things with better components thinking it would last um, and so I've I've got actually I've got the disc player and I've got a whole bag of belts and I just have to figure out which one I need to replace <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, I got it from my grandparents uh, fairly recently. But yeah, Superman in the movie. Uh, that's, uh, gosh, I remember when I was a kid, I didn't see it in the theater for some reason because I was been eight years old at the time. And, and I remember- see, I'm 10 years younger than you, so I, I didn't see anything in the theater oh. until like 1986 or seven. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm an old man. Uh, it, it's what it what makes me unique in being such a hardcore legends fan especially those initial get-togethers with the other fandom by the way who are all wonderful and everything oh, and i'm like here i up and here i am up in the corner uh a big burly 52 year old dude with a handlebar mustache hi <laughs> yeah no for sure i mean that's it's funny because like you're a little bit older than me but that's how i feel too because the 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 audience for cw shows skews super young mm-hmm but oh. and also though and me too awesome i'll admit it i was a huge degrassi the next generation fan and i discovered that in my 40s so i, I have weird tastes i never caught into degrassi uh the only degrassi i ever watched was when james and bob were there um yeah, yeah that's what got me well that's what got me into it oh nice when i was a kid though i remember watching uh this other show that was clearly just a Degrassi ripoff called 15, uh, which I can't remember what it was called in Canada because it actually had a different title in Canada, but on Nickelodeon, it was called 15. And it was like this teen soap. And I just remember telling it, telling a girl that I liked that I had watched it. And she was like, that's a girl's show. What's wrong with you? Um, okay, well, I'll share this story with you. During my Deg uh, Degrassi obsession mm -hmm. at an old place I lived a few years ago with a bunch of roommates, I was in my room on a Saturday watching Degrassi. I come outside during a commercial to go outside and have a cigarette. And my roommate, Amanda, goes, what are you watching? And I was like, oh, Degrassi. It's a Canadian teenage soap opera. Why? And she's like, 
all I can hear are the commercials and they're for ringtones and pimple cream <laughs> and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, what is he watching? <laughs> but it also goes back. I was hooked on um, 90210, me oh. and my ex-wife. The, the only time we didn't watch it is when they put it up against Star Trek Voyager. I was like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dylan. You're not, you're, you're not beating Captain Janeway. Yeah. So I should, I should go back just a little bit because like outside of like the movies. Yeah. Um, I like, and again, like I always had comics. I can, there are certain books that I can still picture like my battered copy, even if I don't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was a, there was a Hulk versus thing book, which was, I think the first Marvel book I ever loved. And it was like about 1988. It was when a uh, thing had that horrible, like a lot of people call it the pineapple thing design. oh the pointy thing yeah the pointy thing yeah. and hulk was gray um and uh the, the big thing i remember from that was that uh it was a two-parter where in fantastic four thing kicked the ever-loving hell out of the hulk and then went over to hulk and he kicked the ever-loving hell out of the thing mm-hmm. and it was my earliest ev- it was my earliest kind of realization like oh the way comics works is that whoever's name is on the cover is the person who's going to win this fight Mm -hmm. and that Uh, there's a shared universe and uh oh yeah well i I knew that okay spider-man cartoon uh all right see i'm i'm thinking from uh my old man uh uh mind you so which spider-man you're talking about the 90s i'm talking talking about the 60s cartoon oh the uh, 60s one I think, and again, I might be wrong. It's been a long, long time. I think that the home video releases or the, the video disc releases, the CEDs of that Spider-Man cartoon had those old um, Avengers, you know, the- The, the Marvel, cartoons, do you mean the Marvel superheroes? The ones where they just point a camera at the comic book and shake it. Yeah, I discovered that when I was eight years old. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world oh, because- sure. and that, the theme songs, the theme songs were when Captain America throws his mighty shield. It's great. Yeah. And I think that those were on the Spider-Man discs. I could oh, be wrong. Okay. There were a second set of discs that also had the I see. I see. But I think like early on, I knew that there was a shared universe because like I'd seen Hulk and Thor fight in one of those cartoons. Oh, uh, okay. And, and, but like, I remember that, and then I remember uh, when I was in middle school, I, I got the Hawkeye miniseries by Roger Stern and George Perez, mm. and uh, I remember in the first issue of it, uh, with the first appearance of Mockingbird, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he comes, and Hawkeye takes a swing at her, and she just beats the piss out of him, <laughs> and I was just like, wow, you got pantsed by a girl in your own book, like, because as, as a kid, like I said, I had already kind of figured out, like, if it's your book, you win. And and so I was like, this is when you know she's a serious character because she came into this dude's book right. and just humiliated him. Right. I, was that now, is, is that the mini series where he loses his hearing at the end? I or, think so. Yeah. I, yeah, honestly, I, yeah. I don't, I haven't read it since I was in middle school. Yeah. But that was one thing that really sticks out at me is that in the first issue of his own series, uh, yeah, she just, kicks his butt. Yeah, well, she kicks his butt. Yeah, that was when I was starting to feed out. I actually, speaking of crisis, because I want to get back to crisis, right yeah. after crisis is when I 
started fading out. I was a freshman in high school and I faded out on comics in general. I kept up with judge dread and stuff here and there. And what got me back by the way, was, uh, 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 Giffen and DiMatteis's justice league, uh, a couple years later. That's what started the ball rolling for me. I mean, me. obviously, as a Booster Gold fan, I, I contractually have to ignore that, but I do <laughs> genuinely. Um, I, I will say, by the way, that the, the, the third and final part of that answer is the death of Superman. Um, as a oh. as a twelve-year-old kid, I actually I had this weird thing. Uh, you know, it was nineteen ninety-two. I'm twelve. The Batman movie had come out and blown everybody away, and I very much had that like. F Superman, he's stupid, the the big blue boy scout. Oh, how dare you, sir. And so I remember watching the local news and uh and a thing came on about how they were gonna kill Superman. And so I like asked my dad to like, hey, keep an eye out for these books at the store. Because in my like 12-year-old wannabe edgelord way, I was like, I want to see him die. Um <laughs> But if you ever read those books, the creation- I did. Oh, I, I was I've I've been reading Superman uh, for about two years before that because it was a slam bang good book. Oh, absolutely! The whole Triangle era is fantastic, and that's what that's what hooked me on like being a regular going into the store and buying comics on Wednesday comic book guy was the fact that I I bought the book just to be like I want to see this guy die. Um, but the creative teams on the Superman books at that time were so absolutely stellar that mm-hmm. like you give them you give them six issues and they've got you for five years, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so the that's what made me like day and date, uh, you know, comic book nerd, which is of course funny because my uh, my booster gold love uh, exists you know, independent of my Superman love, but uh, Dan Jurgens, who created mm-hmm. Booster is the guy who wrote and drew the Death of Superman issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the guy I named my first kid after because I'm a gigantic. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's really nice. I remember that. And I remember going to my local comic shop. There's a line going out the place full of, you know, quote unquote investors. Yeah. And you know, my guy who at this time, the comic book shop I was going to, the guy behind the counter was literally comic book guy from the Simpsons mm-hmm. down to his attitude, but he never gave me any because I was a grown man. And uh, and I walked up and he already had the one for me. I didn't have to wait the, in, in the black bag with the armband, the whole nine yards. I'm walking out and we everyone's heard this story, but it happened to me. I'm talking to somebody and he was saying, man, I'm going to get 10 of these. And I don't think he said, put my kids through college, but it was the gist was that like, I'm going to get rich on this. And I had learned at the age of 12 at a comic con in Philly, how this really worked. Uh, And my father was an auctioneer and I was, I looked at the guy and I, and I, and I wanted to be a smart ass and say, you see, things are only valuable when they're rare. And everyone's got one, yeah, but the instead fact that I, they printed 10 million of this or whatever. Yeah. I, but instead yeah. I, I thought better of it and I went, good luck and, and, and left. Yeah. So I, I, I will say yeah. that one, my one last death of Superman thing, cause this, uh, uh, so 
back when the Arrowverse was doing Invasion. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I had reached out to some of my comic book friends about doing a little fundraiser to benefit. Um, now, of course, I'm blanking on his name. The guy who wrote Invasion, who uh, was oh. a hit run. Uh, oh, gosh. Until the created Rocket Raccoon. Raccoon. Uh, Bill Mantlo. Mike, Bill Mantlo? Yeah, Mantlo? Bill Mantlo, thank you. Uh, but uh, so I, I reached out to some people to do a thing to uh, to support Bill Mantlo. And uh, Mark Guggenheim very generously provided me a script book. He had, he had them specially bind a script book of all of the episode scripts. And all of the producers signed it and I auctioned it off. Oh, that's nice. Uh, on eBay. And uh, they made a second one that nobody signed, which was just for me. And uh, I had Mark sign it years later. Um, but uh, I had I asked Dan Jerkins if he would contribute something. And he sent me uh, uh, this beautiful ink wash uh, sketch cover of uh, Batman Beyond. Oh, nice. In the box with it, um, he included the, you remember the platinum edition of the Death of Superman? Yeah, yeah. Like one per store retailer thing. Um, he sent a, a platinum copy of the Death of Superman that he remarked. There's a giant Superman face across the whole uh, side of the grave. Mm-hmm. And uh, a very nice note that was basically like, uh, I only have a few of these left. I wanted to make sure you got one because this is a really stand up thing that you're putting together. Um, and so, like, I have that, that's been in my office, on my office wall since it happened. I, it's never coming down. <laughs> yeah, like, that's awesome, the dude. Book, the book that hooked me for good into comics and uh, my, my very good friend did this very generous thing. Because, of course, those things, even now, the platinum editions are like 200 bucks and up. Wow. Um, so getting a free one with So it, you actually got one worth some money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I immediately opened mine up and uh, and wore I wore the armband. I wore the armband to work for a week. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I I was in you know I was in middle school, high school at the time. So yeah, I did the same. I for sure had it on for probably longer than I should have because I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is I was joking, and I'm sure you were serious. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> so, dude, Russ, I could talk comic books with you probably for. Uh, hours and hours and hours but I, i'm sure the the legends fans out there are just like when are they going to get to the legends when are they going to get to the fireworks factory yeah and here we are you you mentioned uh, mark guggenheim yeah. so let's get into legends and the arrow verse in general now I'll just give you a quick background for me when it started and arrow started i had no interest in it whatsoever it looked dark what i saw looked too dark and i was sick and tired of dark takes on superheroes Mm -hmm. and when flash was introduced i was like well what's this now and that led into me becoming a huge fan of all the shows and i think what maybe grabbed you as well besides it being your job but what grabbed me as a comic book geek as evidenced by the first half hour of this uh, podcast i was like these people get it they get it I growing up, whenever they did TV or movies and they go, we need to change the comic stuff. That's just silly. No, they embrace it. Like all the little characters, all the little, at first, all the Easter eggs, like they're meeting at the corner of Wolfman and Perez and stuff like that. And it just went on and on and on. And legends became my favorite because 
I loved that first season, even though I knew it was it was pretty bad, but I just loved the concept of it and what it became. And I want to ask you, what was your viewing experience uh, being introduced to the Arrowverse? I know it's part of your job. Uh, and what grabbed you watching these shows? Because the CW, and these, by the way, also not the highest budget shows, but they yeah. had the most heart, the most true heart of comic book geek heart of anything I, uh, that's out there, I think. Oh, yeah. I still, I, I was actually just saying the other day, I think that the the Arrowverse is the truest live action interpretation of an actual comic book universe that we've ever gotten. Because even the MCU, which I, you know, most people would argue is objectively better content than the Arrowverse on the whole, um, it still doesn't really feel like comic books. Like they all work for the government. None of them wear masks and they don't have personal lives. And and so like they're not really superheroes. It's like cops with powers. Yeah. Um, it, it, in, in fact, uh, we'll see the, la the last Spider-Man movie recorrected all that. So maybe we'll get that there, but I agree with no, you hundred percent. Nobody has a secret identity. Sure. They're, they're definitely, and and I will say that in the last couple of years, Marvel has been introducing a, a real diversity of content. And I don't mean diversity in terms of the people in front of the camera, but like diversity in content in terms of like not everything feels exactly the same anymore. Yes, yes. And so maybe we'll start to see something that more like resembles the the spirit of the comics. I'm enjoying uh, their TV uh, output more than their film output at this point. No, I'd agree with that. Yeah, but so anyway, I I, I was I was having that same conversation. I, I agree with you. I think that like not only do I love the Arrowverse, but I think it's it's the best representation of what a shared superhero universe in live action should be that we've seen now. And so, uh, and I also it's funny you say that you didn't have any interest in Arrow at first because it was all dark and gritty. Uh, I did not watch the first season of Arrow. Um, and what happened was that Arrow blew up right around the time that our site blew up. Oh, and wow. Okay. Back then, I was really, uh, we still covered TV and movies, obviously. You have to, especially when they're superhero adaptations. But I, like, we when, when we were a smaller site, back before we had, like, a million people on Facebook, um, <clears throat> You would get the, like, anytime we covered movies or TV, especially if it was like, if I wanted to write about Chuck, which was on TV at the time and starred Brandon Rao, um, you'd inevitably get half the comments were like, what does this have to do with comic books? Your mm -hmm. comicbook.com, what does this have to do with comic books? And and so, like, I, I really did, like, focus most of my attention on comics because I took that criticism way more to heart than I should have. Um, yeah, considering and, that Chuck was basically a comic book. <laughs> yeah, well, and they made a comic book out of it, which I think happened before I was even at comicbook.com. But, uh, so anyway, the Arrow blew up around the same time the site started to blow up, and it became impossible not to cover movies and TV, because like just the number of eyeballs that were on the site, there was no way to keep everybody there with just comics. And so mm -hmm. uh, we started covering more and more stuff. And Arrow released that uh, Arrow Year One uh, special. I don't know if you saw this or if you remember this. No. Um, and then when I figured out that the whole point was it's basically a year one, year two, et cetera, et cetera yeah. story, I went, okay. It just, at first, I was like, 
He doesn't even have a mask. Paint? Get, get out of here. So in they had a thing called Arrow Year One, which I thought was really clever because the, the show had blown up and it, it, you know, obviously it wasn't doing Smallville numbers. It wasn't bringing in 15, 20 million people or whatever it was that Smallville had at its height. Um, not 15, that's, that's crazy. But I think Smallville did five or six at its height um, back when people watched live broadcast TV. Yeah, Smallville, um, Smallville was big time there for a while. Yeah, no, totally. But so because Arrow had gotten so much positive buzz, and I think that the, I think before season two started, we already knew the Flash was coming. Uh, and so like there was a lot of attention on the second season of Arrow. And so before the second season started, they had Arrow Year One, which was basically just a, a 42 minute episode that recapped everything from the first season and it was genius because like as somebody who had at least a passing interest and who was like i should probably get caught up on this uh it just gave you everything you needed to know so that the next week i could hop right back on and be like okay season two let's go um so i've been i've been with the Arrowverse since the week before arrow season two started nice which by the way uh when I did finally get into Arrow, my buddy Pete, who I'll be doing my Picard podcast with, who kept trying to convince me to watch it because he's like, just watch season two. Just watch season two. It's the best. And I have to agree because season two of Arrow is a banger. That's a great season of television. And I mean, it's funny because uh, people kind of forget uh, when, when we talk about how criticized the first season of Legends was, people forget that like that didn't happen in a vacuum that happened because the first season of legends came out immediately following the best season of arrow and the best Mm. season of the flash that either show would arguably ever have. Mm. I have a very big soft spot for flash season four because Mm. I absolutely love the thinker and I got, because I was tired of fast villains and I I love, and I loved the thinker and I loved Elongated Man, so it's a shame about what happened, and that's all. I'll leave it at that. But uh, I that that but I agree. Just from a pure storytelling, cohesive uh, standpoint, that's the best season. Yeah, and so to me, it's like part of the reason that that Legends season one got such a bad rap wasn't just that it wasn't as good as Legends would ultimately be. It's that the bar for the Arrowverse was absurdly high at that moment because we were coming off of Arrow Season 2 and The Flash Season 1. Mm-hmm. And even Supergirl at that point, like it, it, it always kind of had its critics and it never had the universal love that Flash did in its first season. But like it was considered a huge deal that like a CBS show with Callista Flockhart was like, coming to the cw and hanging out with our our you know slumming it with with arrow and yeah, so I, I took it to be i'm like i'm like i looked it up i'm like greg berlanti is a lot more powerful than i thought because i was like okay i'm gonna take it and i'm gonna put it here in cw you're gonna like it and they're like yes sir well and i mean honestly one of the things that a lot of people in the, the nerd space only see greg through the, the lens of the Arrowverse, and people are like how's the guy who co-wrote the green lantern movie getting all this sway and Mm -hmm. it's like because at one point he was the most prolific showrunner in the history of television he had like 21 shows on six different networks a couple of years ago he's the modern day stephen j cannell or whatever i mean (laughs) 
Yeah, so like that's that's why he has all of this pull and all of this power, and he got an overall deal with Warner Brothers is because like he's not just the Arrowverse. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I do remember too. I actually liked the first season. Um, I I remember writing a really good review of the pilot, and then going back a few weeks later and realizing nobody but me liked it, and so I was like <laughs> only journalist quoted in the show's wikipedia page <laughs> and and i remember uh the, the the summer after the show after the season wrapped uh before season two i ran into mark guggenheim on sunday at san diego comic-con mm. uh we both happened to be at the oni booth and we ended up just standing around talking for like an hour and change because uh it was Sunday afternoon and everybody was trying to get the hell out of there and nobody noticed that it was Mark Guggenheim. Hmm. And so uh, I remember sitting and talking to him and him being like, wait till you see what we got going on. This is like, we're, we're leveling up. The show's getting better. Like and he, he agreed with me that the show didn't got a bad rap and wasn't as bad as everybody thought it was. But he's like, we, we saw any. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember that conversation so clearly. And I remember the fact that he was so giddy about what was going on on Legends and Arrow that he kept showing me stuff on his cell phone that he wasn't supposed to show people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that's Mark draws criticism, and, and sometimes it can be valid. But honestly, nobody loves these characters. Nobody loves these actors. Nobody loves these shows more than Mark Guggenheim. Yeah. Uh, and reason. That he's the guy who got tapped to run all of these uh, crossover events that nobody mm -hmm. wanted to touch with a ten foot pole. It's insane. I would when we did when we did our uh, crisis uh, series on this podcast, and I really dived deep into the IMDb. And instead of just the normal freaks and weirdos, it was a lot of stories about how hard this that especially crisis on uh, Infinite Earth, how oh, yeah. hard it was for Mark. And uh, I, I, after everything I read, I came away with so much love and respect for everyone behind it. Because at the time, I even I recognized this is an undertaking of oh, different yeah. sets, different crews, and had to make this work. And warts and all, Crisis on Infinite Earths is fantastic. I oh. I adore it. I adore it. Everyone likes to say that Earth X is the best, and I'm like maybe from a pure story cohesiveness it clips along but yeah. the undertaking that is crisis on infinite earth mm -hmm. is insane and one of the things i love about it is be, the the legends episode is a legends episode oh yeah for sure. it it's suddenly they everything turns weird they're breaking yeah. the fourth wall and, and I, I loved every second of that and that's what I wanted to to bring up again Can about I the evolution. Oh yeah, please, please go. It's your, you know what? I'm interviewing you. I'm, I, 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 I'm going to shut up. Uh, of, of the various pieces of like props and wardrobe that I own, uh, I have uh, Sargon the Sorcerer's uh, cape and tie. And uh, Are you kidding me? From Crisis. Yeah, that's, uh, that may be my, my, uh, that may be my Halloween costume next year. It better be. <laughs> It better be well, okay. The other, but... the other thing that I have is I, I recently <laughs> did purchase uh, Brandon Routh's shirt and tie from uh, 
the Kingdom Come universe. So if I can find a Kingdom Come Superman costume to put under it, I might have to go that way. That's good. I will <laughs> tell you. I will tell you when we did that. When we did that that episode, uh, mm-hmm. Carrie uh, from Bebo's Legends podcast mm-hmm. was our guest on that one, and we were just going nuts about it. And I said, I got. I got to tell you, the nerd part of me. I love the Sargon outfit, but I was mad. I like, why? I'm like, because Sargon's not a, a bad guy. Sargon's a good yeah. guy. And and they're like making fun of me for being too much of a dork. And it was like, it got under my skin. What can I tell you? No, I, I get that. I get that. And it's funny because like, I think part of that was just, they wanted to have some golden age representation. Um, and I'm all for it. Um, The other thing I will say about Mark before we get too far off of what we were talking about is, uh, talk about the you know, the undertaking of crisis and one of the things that people don't necessarily figure out because you know you have to really do some some math for this to click um when crisis was airing and everybody was gushing and people were excited and ezra miller shows up on tv and people are blown away yeah not so much anymore do you know what mark Guggenheim was doing instead of getting any of that praise. What's that? He was directing the one where they're trapped on TV, and all of the response to Crisis was getting texted to his assistant, who was just like trying to manage the noise of his phone while he was directing. That's insane. While directing what might be the best episode of season seven. So, uh, six. Oh, season six. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Uh, no, actually, five. Yeah, five. 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 Yeah. God damn it. Yeah, yeah, fun. The, the the one we just did. Yeah, pretty much the best episode of that season, I would say. Yeah. And and I I've already I've talked to some folks about that episode, and and like I talked to um James Egan, who, who was one of the writers on that episode, and and uh, have some great anecdotes in the book about how uh, the average Legends script has like twenty five scenes or something, and because of the nature of that episode, it had like a hundred and six. Wow. And so when they handed the script to Guggenheim, he was like, are, are you doing this to me on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this one last thing about Crisis mm-hmm. that I, I thought derailed it from a fan watching at home perspective was three episodes and then a month off for Christmas. And yeah. then the last two, at, I was like, I know me and uh, my friends who watched it were just like, that sucks. And I think too, because like obviously after the big ass fight and losing Oliver and all that kind of stuff, uh, the the denouement episode was never going to be as uh, like as rapidly devoured as the rest of the crossover was. Uh, But I think that waiting a month and then having the big episode and then having the denouement was like it really put the crisis episode in a position to be overly criticized because people were just mm-hmm. like, we waited a month and then we got one big fight and an episode where everybody's sad. Right. Right. Although that final episode, that legends episode is fantastic because how do you, how do you end crisis on infinite earth? The Arrowverse version. Oh yeah. We're going to do it legends way. Cause you can't do it the comic book way. You yeah. have to figure it out within this universe. And we're going to do it with giant Bebo's, Sarah Lance leading the charge. I mean, Katie yeah. Lott's that entire episode, Russ, is oh, yeah, literally sure. be planting a flag on every set going, it's my show. Yeah. You're, you're all on my show now. 
it's it's funny because uh, they shot five hundred two before they even had a finalized script for the the crisis episode of Legends. Oh, really? Uh, so yeah, Meet the Legends was actually shot before uh, Crisis, and so one of the things I was talking to Kevin Mock about is that like Katie had to come in and be emotional and kind of match the tone for what she was doing in Crisis, but she hadn't even seen the Crisis script yet, so she didn't know what she was matching. Oh wow, and, that's uh, insane. And so like it's one of those things where it's like that was a heck of a thing for her to try to figure out on the day. And uh, then you had things like the scene with Bayrod where he left a little art for her. And it was like, how are we trying to match Sarah's tone when we don't know what her tone is? And meanwhile, we have to do the heavy lifting of like making this new character, like feel like he's helping in the situation and not just like taking up camera time. So Russ, I got so much more I want to talk about. I know I only got an hour of your time though. So I, think we might, I, I mean, we... I can talk longer if you want to edit more. <laughs> oh, no, no, dude. I'm having a great time. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Meet super friends, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Batman, Together for the first time with three new friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog, Super Friends. Welcome back to Gideon, guys. And before we get back to all the Legends talk, this is normally the time where we do the plugs. And I got nothing to plug, uh, even though I do. No, we're not going to even talk about Mystery Titans Theater uh, on YouTube. Check it out. Pro wrestling. No one gives a shit. The thing we're here to plug is Russ's book and how to do so. How do you uh, plug it? Just how do we back it? Uh, Russ, it's a Kickstarter campaign. Like we talked about, uh, yeah. I'll post the link in the show notes and, uh, and everything, but can, without going into too much detail, uh, how's it going? You know, and how can people help out? It's going really well. I mean, I, I set a pretty modest goal because uh, I, I, I know that it's really going to cost me somewhere between like, depending on how many people buy the books and how much printing cost is, it'll cost somewhere between eight and $12,000 to do the whole thing. Um, I set a modest goal because I know I'm going to do it. I did this with Josie. It was the same thing. It's like, uh, I, I knew if I had to, I'd go a little out of pocket. I didn't have to because the, the crowdfunding went really great. Um, so far, I'm having really great results on on Legends too, uh, and and you know, so we're we're full steam ahead towards my comfort zone. But we've already successfully passed the initial funding goal. So like, you're promised that the thing that you buy is going to exist. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, basically with Kickstarter, it's funny. I have had a lot more people than I expected kind of ask me to walk them through Kickstarter because uh, I, I guess some people were just starting an account to support Legends. Yeah, I uh, would imagine so. Oh, this is a dedicated fan base, a small oh, sure. but dedicated fan base, as we know. And but and again, the way we met was through just one of the uh, random fan get-togethers. Yeah. Uh, that that go on thanks to Carrie and uh, that are so wonderful and the Legends fans are just the best the most welcoming uh, group of folks 
Oh, for I, sure. And I, uh, I love that they're behind this. I was just talking the other day about, uh, and, and this isn't to say anything bad about anybody else, but I, it, it's, it's a way that kind of elevate us and provide some context here. Um, my original first book pitch that I ran by Paramount was I was, I wanted to do like get my hands dirty and do kind of an investigative look inside of the disaster that was the 2017 justice league movie. Oof. And, uh, and, and, you know, by the time I got the pitch in the Snyder cut had not been officially announced yet, Yeah. but um, in the time when I was waiting for a response from corporate to tell me if I could do it, um, the Snyder Cut was announced, and then uh, Cinema Blend writer named Sean O'Connell uh, announced that he was doing a book called "Release the Snyder Cut." And so mm -hmm. I just told I told CBS, I'm like, I don't want to I don't want to be two guys writing the same book about the same incredibly niche thing. So mm -hmm. like, I'm gonna do something else, and that's when I pitched Josie. And, yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm so happy that it went that way. I'm so happy. Well, yeah, well, no, because, well, because because one is a very positive uh, story. Yeah, we, exactly. Josie, I mean, yes, Josie bombed, but I remember when it came out and seeing, hearing, uh, reading reviews, people were like, this is a good movie. And it is. And, and that's also, a more, fun honestly, thing to talk about. Very much like the Legends fans, uh, it's a fan base that is kind of underserved like because it was a movie 20 years ago that didn't make that much money so it's not like there's a ton of content out there and so uh you have these people who are very passionate who are very positive and who were underserved and so they were super excited that somebody with a platform because like you you look me up and you're like oh that guy works for a giant website um so they were super excited that somebody with a platform was kind of taking their thing seriously and, and yeah. doing this thing and um, so I was really embraced by the Josie fandom in a way that was really, really satisfying and gratifying. Yeah, that's and great. I have loved every part of that experience. I'm very proud of the book. I'm really glad of all the friendships that I made making and promoting that book. And uh, I just, I look back on it and I'm like, man, there's another universe somewhere where I'm spending my entire life arguing with people about Zack Snyder. <laughs> oh, uh, please. We could go off for another hour before we even get to Legends if you and I were yeah. going to go back and forth on the, the, those things. Maybe well, for a sequel, I, maybe I also, for a sequel have, to the I have the, a really nuanced one. view of Zack Snyder, which means nobody likes because nobody has a nuanced view of Zack Snyder. Uh, I, think, I, think I, I, I think I could... I think I, mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't literally mean nobody, but you know what I mean. Like, no, I think from a pure comic book like, fan perspective... Yeah. I my, think if you and I would, yeah. If I was on Twitter after writing a book that didn't take a definitive stand on whether uh, Zack Snyder is the Messiah or the Antichrist. But look, all I'm saying is his Martian Manhunter looked like balls. That's all. That's all I'm saying. You know, yeah, and that's all I care about. Uh, <laughs> John Jones, cool. Eh, TV did it better. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh man, you remember the night? You remember when that twist happened? Yeah. That was, that was, again, like, in the early days of the Arrowverse, when there weren't 300 characters yet, every now and again, something like that would happen, and people would pop off on social media. It was yeah, just, it like, was nuts. Holy cow, they just gave us Martian Manhunter. Holy cow, they just gave us Jay Garrick, you know? Oh, Jay, well, the, I'm a golden age nut, and 
I had that same experience through my, uh, now we're doing plugs. Here's what I'm going to plug. If y'all ain't watched Stargirl, watch freaking Stargirl. Oh, for sure. If you are a golden age superhero fan, you don't even have to be. I am. I'm a Justice Society nerd. And that show injected into my veins. Also, amazingly family friendly. Anyone can watch it. It it looks great. Everything yeah. about it looks great. The costumes look are almost Batman 66, but they look realistic. I can't even explain it. It's yeah. a wonderful show that actually got a chance once they found out that they were uh, getting canceled, managed to write a final scene that wrapped it all up and just made my heart swell. An I, I amazing that's show. to do when you have uh, one point of view character. Like if this was the Sarah show with friends, uh, then you can tweak the final episode and make sure that Sarah has closure and everything else kind of feels fine. Um it's it's harder to do when you're writing for uh, a, a real well developed ensemble. Not that they weren't mm -hmm. well developed on Star Girl, but it's called Star Girl. Oh know? yes, and it is because all these shows have to be all of the. Um, that's why everyone. One of the things about the Arrowverse shows that got on my nerves was that eventually everyone has to be a superhero because they're yeah. ensemble shows. It just not everyone has to be a superhero, and it got to a point where everyone's a superhero now. Even yeah. the, like Jimmy Olsen doesn't need to be guardian. Okay. Or, oh, I'm sorry, James. James Olsen doesn't need to be guardian. Don't want it. I don't want his sister to be guardian. I really don't want Supergirl's sister to wear bad makeup and be a superhero. I liked her in charge of the government agency. That, that was a truly baffling one, man. And I, I love Kyler Lee and I love Alex. She's Jones, amazing. Like, the superhero thing was just, I, I didn't I, get it. I don't, I didn't get it. I'm like, her role for all those seasons was perfect. And I'm like, mm -hmm. and we're doing what now? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I should steer back to, to my actual plug because we get. Yeah, let's get to your actual plug. Um, the one thing <laughs> I'll say is uh, if you, if you do find yourself intimidated by the process of onboarding with, with Kickstarter, which shouldn't be too, too hard. It's just setting up an account like you do for like Amazon or whoever else. Yeah, it's super easy. I uh, did it. But it is one of those things where you can, you have the capacity to click through and like use your Facebook or use your Google to sign into Kickstarter. And then like, if you have billing set up through those, it's just, it's easy as that. Um, the one tricky thing I will say, uh, besides the books themselves, I've got a bunch of like uh, the labels from the liquor bottles, which are like the fake in-universe brands. Uh -huh. uh, uh, that I, I have like rolls and rolls of stickers that I got at one of the prop auctions. <laughs> God, and, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and I have uh, some Bebo fur, which I'm going to be mounting little squares of Bebo fur and like little lucite type of uh, squares for people. Well, you know what, and, Russ, you know what that means? That means you are going to actually maybe make more money on Bebo than the freaking CW did. I think I already have because I've sold like five, I, because like, the little frames are kind of expensive and the, the Bebo fur was kind of expensive. It's like, because this is the authentic Bebo fur. It's actually from right. one of the prop auctions. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, hey, Gideon guys would not support fake Bebo fur. It's only the real deal but, here. But I will say it, it was bought for the show, never used, never never actually was a Bebo. No Bebos were harmed in the making of this, this crowdfunding campaign. Of course. Um, but like, because 
because of the fact that like you get the little plastic thing and you get the fur and like both of those weren't super cheap it's like I, it's a 50 dollar i think add-on to the to the thing which is cool it's a nice little mounted thing that you can put up and if you've got that kind of money to blow on like a cool bebo thing then you can do it but like yeah. Because of the fact that I've already sold eight of those, yeah, I, I definitely, I've, I've made 400 bucks off of Bebo. That's more than the CW ever it's did. It's baffling. It is baffling to me that um, they didn't, there was no marketing whatsoever like of Bebo. I Warner Brothers consumer product thing because uh, one of the things that Phil Klemmer told me during our, uh, during our interview is that. Of the book, Bebo, for the book, right? Well, yeah, for the book. Bebo Saves Christmas was produced entirely by the CW. Like Warner Brothers. Well, that explains it. <laughs> Warner Brothers Animation was not involved. Warner Brothers was not. It, it, it was a CW thing. That's why it's not on the DVD because Warner Brothers doesn't own it outright. And so uh, I, my guess is it must be like, yeah, Warner Brothers consumer products are the ones who, for whatever reason, were not interested in getting in on the potential merch for the Bebo thing. You know, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't think that I, I tried to watch it twice and had to turn it off. That explains a lot, but I, I am DB curious. I explain uh -huh. a few games uh, that yeah. we like to play here on the show. We're going to get to one in a, a, towards the, at the end, and we're going to wrap up with that one. But uh, I like to go into the IMDb for each episode and uh, do some viewer reviews. And I'm, I'm not doing any of those, uh, but goofs and trivia, my friend. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can find some real, uh, some interesting folks who observe some interesting things. Yeah. And uh, I, I picked uh, two from season seven uh a few from season seven and, and i'm and an old classic from season one and uh, we're gonna start with goofs from bullet blondes season seven episode one the calendar in the bank says it's thursday the ninth in the following episode it's stated that the action is taking place in october 1925 october 9th 1925 was a friday and that happens all the time. I can't imagine oh, that, yeah. that that's your thing. <laughs> I it's funny because like I think I, I, I listened to some of your episodes before and Oh you uh, did? Yeah, I'm yeah. Sorry. Well, funny, <laughs> I I listened to your season one episodes and because on Carrie's show you said that you had, had a, a hiatus, um, and because on Apple Podcasts I the see. show only goes up to 112. That's why I asked you earlier off mic, are we doing 113 or are we just going to I understand that. Well, let me explain this. I am currently re-releasing Gideon Guys as a solo uh, oh. feed, but it's on the feed. It's called the PWOM Podcast Network feed is where all the episodes, all 78, 79 of them are. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we didn't build up a giant audience because we were part of a pro wrestling uh, podcast network. So that's 
for me, I, I listened to a couple, a bunch of your season one stuff, and uh, you were in in one twelve. I can't remember what the thing was, but you were speculating. You're like, there's there's no way this person's serious. This person has to have seen the culture of IMDb commenters and just decided to have some fun. That would be Travis. That was Travis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so again, uh, if you ever wanted to go, uh, if you want to actually listen to when the podcast was good. Uh, uh russ you want to <laughs> go go on a, a little farther <laughs> but uh i'm like i said i'm in the process of separating the feeds uh mm. it, it was what is one of those things where groups of friends got together to pay for the hosting to let anybody do whatever they wanted and almost everything was professional wrestling because that's how we became friends and so mm. it was hard to separate your show from like i have to subscribe to eight pro wrestling shows to listen to this yeah. legend show it, yeah it was like yeah. that anyhow another goof my friend it's a mad 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 scientist season season seven episode five at ten thirty seven. it's not necessary to use the clutch in order to start and drive a vehicle with a manual transmission a clutch simply makes it convenient to do so and its proper use will add significantly to the life and engine of drivetrain components. I love IMDb car uh, pedants, uh -huh. uh, train pedants, uh, military uniforms. That's a big oh, one. That's that's the one. That's what you were talking about. It was yeah. Jackson's dad. In one well, time. holy shit. That was the one I was going to bring back. And we're going to bring <laughs> it back. I, you know what? Well, I listened to it this morning, so you're okay. <laughs> Well, no, we're going to bring it back then just for the people who might be tuning in for the first time. Huh. <laughs> because it is from Legends of Tomorrow. And this, uh, under Goofs, yeah. Uh, season one, uh, Last Refuge, which, by the way, might be the worst episode of season one, all in all. There's, all, all in all. The Pilgrim, not that impressive of a giant big bed. But, uh, and I see, I thought I was going to surprise you with this one, but we're just going to do it for the people who are listening for the first time. God damn it. I can't believe that that's the one. Jefferson's father is revealed to be a U.S. Army soldier assigned to the 10th Mountain Division. His rank is PV2, identified by the single chevron on both of his lapels. His rank is upside down. Further, it is revealed that he died in Mogadishu, Somalia. There were only two men from the 10th Mountain Division that were killed in Somalia. Neither of them had the last name of Jackson. Now, here's my uh, my baldy or no prize explanation. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. In in the same way that we came to accept that Hey World was how things were ultimately supposed to be and that we didn't ruin time by saving Zari's family, uh -huh. I, I'll argue that that is because Jax saved his dad and that his dad was never supposed to have died in the first place. You know what? I'll accept it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, th th well, that is an amazing coincidence, Russ. <laughs> yeah. I was going, I wonder what I had from season one that really made me laugh. Oh, that really made us laugh. And that's the one yeah, you're funny to. because, again, like I, I listened to uh, I listened to the first handful when you first asked me on, and then like to this morning doing dishes, I was listening to 112. So it's literally like 
that one was fresh in my mind because the season one of this podcast was much like uh, much like season one of legends of tomorrow there was something there we just hadn't quite figured it out yet uh, <laughs> well it's funny because when you said that i was like i, I was like well it, it just i can't tell if he's being serious or just making a legends joke <laughs> no no that was it see that is see, and that is why i'm i'm separating everything from the feed now and uh and getting it out there so people don't have to you know subscribe to a network uh by the way i still own that network and anyone who wants to do podcasts about whatever they want let me know i'm I'm still paying for it uh well the person who was paying for it decided they didn't want to do it anymore and i said i'll take on the uh the uh, the cost and i was going to announce this uh at a later date but yeah it's going to be a place where whatever you want to do a podcast about, I just want to hear it and make sure it doesn't sound you know, ridiculously terrible, but anything you want to do, you can put it on uh, just, you know, a chance to you know, express yourselves uh, out there. It's funny. I have an absurdly niche podcast that I want to do. And I, I can't like, I couldn't start it if I wanted to, cause I, I haven't run it by Paramount yet, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I want to write, I want to do this podcast called turning away songs. Uh, where each episode is a deep dive into the history behind the songs of Phil Oaks, uh, who is a, a folk singer. And I know, uh, yeah, I know Phil Phil Oaks. That sounds yeah. right up. That sounds right up the PWOM Podcast Network uh, uh, alley, my friend. Uh, you I, figure that out. I, I I had this conversation with somebody the other day, and I, uh, I there's a there's a a person who's a like a a professional musician and I, when i say professional i mean like you'd know his band if i, wow. if I said, you know, who is a huge phil oaks fan and like i reached out to him a while ago and i was like would you do a thing if i like would you come and do a phil oaks interview and uh he's like probably let's talk about it when i'm not so busy and i'm like it, when i talk to him again if he says yes the, the podcast is happening <laughs> that's fantastic but now it's time for trivia now, sometimes we get trivia in, in the IMDb that's actual trivia, or uh, sometimes I think maybe people don't quite understand what trivia is. Uh, from season seven, episode 11, Rage Against the Machines. The title is named after the band Rage Against the Machine. Can we- two, two out of three people found that interesting. Season six. Episode 8, Stressed Western. The episode title is a play on the name of the American hotel chain, Best Western. One out of one person found that interesting. <laughs> I, I, do, I feel like there we got a, a real increase in pun names starting around season 5. Like had, yeah, yeah. Romeo v. Juliet and, uh, and, and from that point on, like because there's always been kind of like clever little like pop culture references. Raiders of the Lost Art yes. might be the first one. Which, here's a fun thing about that episode. So uh, back when Raiders of the Lost Art happened, uh, <clears throat> the CW was still providing reporters with DVD screeners. They did not have a screening website set up yet. They were still sending out discs for us to do our reviews and such. And so, uh, actually, you know, that might not be true. They probably had a screening site set up. They probably just also sent out discs for specific people or something. Anyway, I got a, I got a copy of uh, 
Raiders of the Lost Ark on DVD. And uh, I took a picture of it and I texted it to Guggenheim. And I was like, hey, look what they sent me. And Mark writes me back. He goes, you got to tell me what you think once you're done with that. This is the episode where I think we either figured out who we are or we're going to burn every bridge we have left. It feels like it. <laughs> and it, it it's just one of those I, I'll never, ever, especially once Legends became what Legends became. Like, I'll never forget that little interaction where he was just like, oh, my God, you got to tell me what you think, because, like, this is the moment. And it's funny because you're talking off mic about how so many people think uh, Bebo God of War is the moment. Yeah, we, people, I, I'm, dude, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, off mic, we had said, what's the moment? What was the switch? What was the switch from season one that's trying to be too dark and too arrowverse and can't quite figure itself out, which given the premise and all the characters, I mean, it was going to take itself a little bit to figure it out, but it had not a lot of a sense of humor. I mean, Ray Palmer, Ray Palmer kills a man as a human <laughs> bullet in the old West and doesn't even think about it. It's one of the funniest things uh, in, in the best episode of that season. <laughs> he murders somebody. Uh, but then season two is when I think it starts to change because it solves the villain problem. Even though, even though I, I will, I am a Casper Crump Vandal Savage guy. Uh, I thought he was not in any way um, a problem with season one. I know he got a lot of blame, Casper but I think he's fantastic. Casper wasn't the problem. I think that the fact, even his little cameo in season five or whatever it was, was a, I popped. I popped. Compelling he can be as an actor. Um, I think that, you know, Casper was not the problem. The problem was that the show didn't know what the show wanted to be at that time. Yeah, it couldn't figure itself out at the time. But a lot of the blame, well, there was a lot of nerd blame of like, well, Vandal Savage is supposed to be a big caveman looking guy. I'm like, yeah. are you watching this man's performance? He's fantastic. He's so threatening. Uh, I, I, I loved him. I thought he was fantastic. But season two, is when I think things started to change. And I think Raiders of the Lost Art is right around. I think Guggenheim had it right. It's when it yeah, really started feeling like it. I think you could point to a lot of episodes and be like, depending on what your tolerance for the absurd is, you could point to a lot of things and yeah. be like, that's the moment that, that it changed. Um, I remember uh, the day after Aruba aired, so 217, the season. Mm -hmm. I remember going to my uh, psychiatrist and just like spending way too long explaining to her <laughs> the last scene and how like utterly batshit it was and how this show has become so entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> like just the, the idea where he, where reverse flash is just like, I'm just going to go back two minutes and then four minutes and then eight minutes and then just have an infinite number of myself to fight you. Um, I was just like, that is the most comic book stuff you will ever see in your life on TV. Like that is it. Yeah. And that's okay. Now let's, let's talk about that. Cause I, I, I this, this, the, the villain problem, I, I've seen that come up. We already said anyone who doesn't like uh, Vandal Savage, you know, you're no friend of mine, sir. Vandal Savage is a friend of mine. 
the Legion of Doom, though. Amazing. Three amazingly good-looking men and amazing actors. And I loved that from a pure comic book perspective. The Justice Society, even though it wasn't quite the Justice Society, it was good enough for me at the time. I was like, if that's the only Justice Society I'm getting, then I'm fine with it. Uh, so let I'm going to list all the villains and give me your list from uh, from one uh, to seven. Vandal Savage, Legion of Doom, Mollus, which I guess is actually Damian Dark and Nora and Kuasa and Gorilla Grodd. Neron and the Fairy Godmother. The Fates, Bishop. Who's your favorite? I, You know, I would probably say like T, that team um, that team uh, uh, Team Dark is my favorite just because I, I think that as much as I loved uh, Legion of Doom and I love the way that they did it, they kind of perfectly executed that stereotypical villain thing of when you have a team of villains they like they defeat themselves through infighting i popped so hard for that shot of the legion of doom building that looked just like the one from the cartoon oh yeah i love it mm -hmm. uh and i would just say that to me i think that the the best overall kind of season arc was in season three for the villains because like so much of the Legion of Doom's appeal relied on the fact that they tried to stick them in the shadows for a long time and not explain what the hell was going on. Um, and I think if if you had done in season two what they did in season three, where the uh, the goal was relatively clear mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. the outset, I don't know that the Legion wouldn't have worn thin a lot faster than Team Mollus did. Oh, I left off a villain. I left off Evil Gideon because that that took a while to get to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, I it's funny because you you make that list, and it's like I, I, there are no, there are no villains that I don't like. Uh, oh, I like them all, but I was like, I, who's, your, who's your fave? I, I think my favorite would be Team Malice. Uh, I, I would be tempted to say, um, as much as I know a lot of people actually don't like it as much, the Fate season. I, I really, I, I, I like the Fate season a lot, partly because of uh, Astra. Like, I think that Astra brought something really mm. interesting, really different. And also, I really, one of my favorite things about Legends is that this is a group of people who are outsiders and losers. And so, if you spent the whole seven seasons putting arrows in people's eyes every finale, yeah. like, that wouldn't work for me. The fact that uh, Astra and Damien got, like, to varying degrees, obviously, because Damien was still a pretty irredeemable monster, but like they got he goes out, he goes like, out so good. Yeah. And and you know, uh it's actually there's a really funny bit in I was talking to James Egan, who wrote uh that episode where Damien does go out. And by the way, by the way, that is one of the best that, that's Mr. Parker's cul-de-sac. Yeah, one of the yeah. best episodes of not just that uh, season, but of the series. Yeah, and I still have some of those tapes sitting around here too. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've seen them. Not so, that I, yeah, because I'm because I'm stalking you. I'm in Syracuse yeah. right now. Well, it's cold. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, the the thing James said that that I thought was really interesting and really funny. Uh, 
when Damien sticks out his hand right before he dies and Sarah roll essentially rolls her eyes at him and is like, you know, go after yourself. Um, in the script, originally James had said uh, that she begrudgingly shakes his hand. Oh, I'm glad that I'm glad that she doesn't. That was Katie. It was better. It was better. That was Katie. Katie called him and she's like, there is no way. There's no way. Laurel, there's no damn way she would shake his hand. And Egan was like, you know what? You're right. Yeah, when you're right, you're right. (laughs) And so it even makes no, but it makes it makes that when she comes out and realizes that he kills himself, it makes that even more poignant. Oh yeah, for that, sure. Yeah, that's the way to go. That was the way to go. Yeah, I remember that moment watching as a fan, and when he puts out his hand, I thought if they have her shake his hand, that stinks, and I love that they didn't do it. Yeah, and like I said, that was, and it's funny because like it, it's the kind of thing where it's it, it's really indicative of how collaborative the show is that like yeah. when you get when you get something from us from an actor that's not a suggestion it's not a request it's just like f no we're not doing this um yes. she stuck that, that lost flag like, that lost no, flag right. came down yeah <laughs> and so uh so for him to just be like yeah no you're right you're right that that was a that was a bad instinct and i'm glad that you called me on it um like that's a it's so indicative of kind of everything that i've heard about how legends worked for most of its run yeah um, now- you, you mentioned, I feel like oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. One of the things that didn't necessarily work about season one is um, because they had a much more uh, rigid sense for who they were trying to be in terms of trying to be inspired by Arrow. They wanted to like run the middle ground and not quite, not be quite as dark as Arrow, but not be as light as the Flash. Right. Um, there, you know, some of the only criticisms I've heard of, from anybody about like the behind the scenes, like because everybody's like, "This is a great experience. I love this set. I love these people. I love this job." Um, some of the only people who had any criticisms were like Falcantrell, who was just like, I wanted levity. I wanted my character to like have, if not a sense of humor, at least to be ridiculous enough that there were jokes at his expense. So they went the exact opposite way. <laughs> yeah. And and so like when I told him about the comic and I'm like, yeah, in the comic, there's just a running gag about how he's so gravely serious and everything's about Vandal Savage. It's my and, favorite gag in the comic. The comic is on my desk like, right now. Yeah, Falk's like, I love that. I'd have, I'd have done that in a minute. <laughs> no, even the even the part in the comic, I mentioned this uh, during one of the fan calls, where uh-huh. he brings up Savage and Ray's like, hey, you know, I met him in hell. We played Jenga. He's kind of got his head in a good space. And he's like, nope, nope, don't buy it. Don't buy it. <laughs> yeah. like, that's fun. Yeah, and that's, so it's funny because like, it, I talk about the Katie thing and how she kind of was uncompromising in that, but immediately the writer, the writers were like, no, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're good instinct. Um, and the only criticism that I've seen in, in anybody who I've talked to yet uh, was that bit from Falk where he's like, yeah, I really wish they would have let me be funny because like my character was kind of a bore at times and it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like I didn't at have times. I'm his character, his character, his character was a bore the entire season. The first time the character was funny, what well, you wrote it, and then it was episode one hundred. I will say uh, he didn't say this for the book. This is for an interview I did with him for comic book. Um, I I was really uh, tickled and and kind of honored that he he made this movie called Swap Me Baby, 
-hmm. which is about like this alpha male and this hippie girl who get like body swapped out in the forest and it's like a survival comedy uh and i, I thought it was a ton nice. of fun it's, it's falling back on some stereotypes and some easy jokes but like it was a lot of fun it was dopey silly fun um which is i mean if you're going to do a body swap movie it's going to be dopey silly fun anyway right. now so, okay go ahead i'm sorry when i talked to him i was like where did this come from because you usually play hard asses and bad guys and he's like actually it was from the short that, that i did with you because oh uh, nice i i figured out that like no yeah my instincts are good i can do comedy <laughs> and i was just like i like that i'll take that <laughs> he was very funny in that man yeah for sure and i i will say too i give him a ton of credit for like so the way that cooped up developed and i'll keep it short because the the whole thing of the timmy meow meow project and all that is long but like the way that Cooped Up developed is that I told my friend Taylor Morden, who directed the last blockbuster, uh, that I was doing this Legends thing. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm friends with Fal Kenschel. I bet if you wrote something, he would probably do it. And I'd only met Falk once, and obviously he comes off as really kind of gruff on the show. And so I wrote a version of Cooped Up that was a lot less obviously Hawkman. Like, it was Hawkman. And you know it's Hawkman because it's Falcon. He's got a mace. Um, but like, it was, I tiptoed around it a lot more. And uh, it wasn't as funny because I couldn't go for it. And that was mostly just because I didn't know Falk well enough to know mm -hmm. if he would find that funny. And so uh, when he wrote, when he texted me back, he sent me like a new PDF. And it was basically like, Hey, I made a few changes. Is this cool? I don't mean to step on your toes, but like, I want to really go for it. And I was immediately just like, absolutely. Yep. All you, it looks like, and, and he made it much, much funnier. And then the other thing he did, uh, and I said this, I think on, on word balloon, but I, I love this part of the story and it's because cooped up is kind of a weird niche thing. I haven't talked about it much. Oh, um, please. It, it, if, if anyone hasn't seen cooped up, find it uh by the way you know where you can find it you can find it through links through going to uh, russ's kickstarter because the, all the updates for russ's kickstarter have links and plugs for all kinds of cool stuff so yeah and and also uh if you are a physical media nerd like me i'm doing a short run of vhs tapes of cooped up which you can get as both a standalone uh reward for the kickstarter and as an add-on if you get like the big bundle of all the hardcovers or whatever um but so they shot everything and throughout throughout the shoot uh taylor who uh as i said the guy who directed the last blockbuster he was the one who was directing this but it was all during covid so he was like directing remotely the camera was being operated by falc's roommate um <clears throat> and so they would like FaceTime to set up shots and then Taylor would send me screenshots and send me photos and stuff. And I was like, it was really cool. And then uh, they finally, they sent me the video itself and I start it. And if you've never seen Cooped Up, it starts with a FaceTime call between Ciara Renee's Kendra and, uh, and Falk where she breaks up with him over <laughs> visual voicemail. It's so funny. And 
I did not know Ciara was going to be in it. Uh, in my draft, there was no Hawk Girl, there was no Kendra because I did not have any inkling that they would or could do that. And in the script that Falk sent me, he did not write her in when he made his little rewrite pass. So the first time I saw, holy crap, Hawk Girls in this was when they sent me the final video. That's and I was nuts. Like, that's this nuts. Is so much better than I had it. Like this is so much better than I hoped. So I didn't fun. expect it. Watching it, watching it, I didn't expect it, and uh, it made it, it made me laugh so hard. Uh, Did she yeah. go back to her job as a barista? Though I, I forgot. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, a, a a good friend of mine, um, uh, Craig Byrne, who runs K Site, uh, he asked her about that during like a press room, and I want to say WonderCon or something. Oh, really? <laughs> Uh, and and he he totally deadpanned it. He 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 hit the joke exactly right uh, <laughs> because he he just it was a round table. There was like five people there, and when it was his turn, he's just like, "Do you have any worry that the audience is not going to know that you used to be a barista?" <laughs> and <laughs> just, just cracked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Again. Like I mentioned before, Casper uh, Crump, Vandal Savage, great character, not his fault. The Hawks as characters just didn't work. Not the fault of Falk or Sierra, both yeah. wonderful. It just didn't work, you know. Yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, it's it's funny because like uh, by the time we hit episode one hundred and Falk was back, uh, I think Sierra was already Elsa on Broadway. Like, oh, she, she no, she is killing it in frozen yeah. on broadway right now uh, and and so it's like it's it's kind of crazy when i like i i think uh if i'm gonna get her in the book at all i think i'm gonna have to like buy a cameo I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. <laughs> uh, which believe it or not uh i i did that for two people in the Josie book there were two different people where i was like i can't get you to call me back but i can pay you to answer a couple of questions <laughs> uh, i won't say who but i there were two people uh and and uh i i paid two different people for cameos where i was just like hey this is with the josie book uh you you know who i am because i already emailed your manager three times <laughs> well episode 100 which by the way i loved uh, legends episode 100 oh, yeah. just it was so i guess i'm look i want a, the recreations i like i'm like look i i want the clip show experience without the clip show it did everything yeah. great franz uh uh, get to do his uh, real accent and super fun. Uh, uh, Falk getting to be funny and the return of my favorite season one. Now everyone knows my favorite character is Mick Rory. That's over uh -huh. the course of six seasons. My season one uh, fave is Leonard Snart played yeah. by the amazing Wentworth Miller who that entire season, Russ barbecue sauce on all the scenery. Oh, as yeah. he chews it up and we get the line when he steals ray's eggs he's like mm, my favorite mm, poached i was like oh just <laughs> it's batman 66 he's yeah. the best i i just was gonna take this moment to just talk about uh, the the 100th episode was so good it was it, the story was great um now I love that Mick Rory appears as a cookie and a stand-in who's passed out drunk because we all know the story of right. why that is. 
Sierra couldn't be there because she's killing it on Broadway. Mick couldn't be there or Dom couldn't be there for various reasons. Uh, he's killing it out on the waves now and good for Dom. But uh, we need to wrap this up, man. We could talk about uh, Ledges forever. This has been so wonderful, Russ. I've had so much fun. But before we go, before we go, I want to ask you about all the love you felt from the hardcore legends fans that are out there and this fan community and what it means to you. Oh yeah. It's, it's been great. I mean, and it's funny because again, like very much like what I was saying about the Josie fans where it's just like, uh, if you are going to invest yourself in the way that I have to invest myself to do these things and I have to spend an, a year fixating and I have to then potentially know for the rest, like for the rest of my life, uh, on some level, people are going to be like, oh, the Josie and the Pussycats guy, yeah. Um, when when you get that kind of intertwined mm -hmm. with the things that you're writing about, you really want those things to not suck. And I don't just mean the content, I mean the people. And like the, the, the experience of kind of getting, you know, elbow deep in the Legends fandom has been just a delight. Like, we have a we have a group of us who do who got together and like did uh, an auction group on Twitter where we were all working together so that we could get certain things that we wanted to get and so that nobody was bidding against each other and uh, we you know bought the Mr. Parker outfit and presented it to Eric Gow as a gift and like that was you know three months ago that that auction happened and we're all still talking like daily in that little group because just a wonderful little group of people. And we all kind of uh, got to know each other so well in the weeks running up to the, uh, mm -hmm. to the actual auction. And now it's just like, well, well, we don't want to disband this chat just because the thing that we started it for uh, is totally obsolete. <laughs> um, and so, and it's, you know, it's just a delight. And like, just today I, I bought a book uh, by this, this girl, uh, Cassandra Colesberg. And I'm, I'm sure that I'm saying her name wrong. Uh, she's uh, a teenage uh, a teenage legends fan who has self-published her first novel and has a second one coming out, which is like a queer superhero thing. So I'm oh, that's wonderful. Super, super legends friendly. And uh, so I, I picked up her book because I just like, she's been super supportive of the Kickstarter. She's been super supportive of legends. And I wanted to like throw her a little bit lo of love. And like when I took a picture of my like, you know, hey, I got mail and, and the book, she like freaked out because she's like, uh, hey, somebody in the, the Legends community like is sending me some virtual love and buying my book. And, uh, you know, there's, I have, I, I, I was joking the other day, the only time that I've had any problems with anybody on Legends anything is when you go to Reddit because uh, Reddit, of course, people who faction off and yell at each other. And so on the Legend on the Legends subreddit, you have basically the, the two groups of people, the people who liked only the first two seasons and then the people who hated. Oh, see, now, see, now going back to my the IMDb curious bit, that's the same thing there, but amongst 17 people. Yeah. And that's why it becomes so weird and funny. Reddit yeah. is toxic. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's, it, it kills me because, like, it's the only place that uh, there's been any negativity in the Legends fandom. And it's funny because the other day somebody had a whole post about how great and wholesome this fandom is and like 80 percent 
easy of the responses were very encouraging and up, and up, up uplifting and heartwarming. And then the other 20% were the same handful of people picking the same handful of dumbass fights. And you're just like, yeah, this is why when I said something similar, I put except Reddit at the end. Looking, I looked forward. Because uh, you know what? I'm going to put this out here right now, uh, Gideon gang. I want to finish this project and do season six and do season seven. There's show recaps and goof around and have fun. If you want to do this with me, uh, listeners, anyone, just slide into my DMs on Twitter at Guys Gideon as my plug. And I don't care if you've never podcasted before. You just want to talk about Legends? We'll, we'll get this done. Uh, and I want to talk about it because I want to get to the IMDb because uh, you can see the evolution of dummies. Russ, because at at, at 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 season seven, there's the occasional like, well, this one isn't as woke as uh, the last one, but I kind of liked it. I'm like, oh, now they're using woke. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. Oh, oh, there's more to make fun of or ignore. <laughs> uh, I I will say, man, I I love uh, I love Legends as a show for the way that it handles its diversity, uh, mm-hmm. like. And and as a like straight cis middle aged white dude, I should yeah, not me too. <laughs> talk all that much about diversity. But um, I, I I like to think that I, as somebody who criticizes media and who looks at these things critically on a regular basis, I have some insight. And uh, one of the things that one of the things that people constantly talk about is that when you stop doing very special episodes and start just letting the characters exist in the uh-huh. authentic, uh, that's when you have real representation and it doesn't feel so much like tokenism. Exactly. And I think that that's, a, that's really what Legends got to. Uh, it got to, but I will tell you, no, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to back off on this a little. I think we had uh, a couple of very special episodes on season seven. I liked them. But uh, I, I know what you mean. But I thought the Rosie the the Rosie the Rivers one was a bit of a after school special. Uh, oh, that that yeah. I mean that one that one for sure was on. Uh, although I I think the interesting thing about season seven is that the show itself was reworking its mission statement, and so like season seven they were grappling with the fact that they were like oh, maybe history kind of sucks. and maybe Yeah, I get it. I got it. Oh, yeah, like, I totally got it. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that there was a lot more kind of didactic messaging in season seven. But I also, I kind of give it more of a pass because I'm like, it's, it's also justified by like, that's what the narrative was. All right. Okay. As we're wrapping this up, I'm going to have to say this because this is the kind of thing we're going to get to when you guys all join me and we get to season seven because I loved the Rosie the River episode. I loved uh, the speakeasy episode, but need for speed makes no sense. There was no need for that speed. There was no need for uh, Nate to suddenly have to act like a racist. If 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 we can break this down, it was only for the point of the story, but then it ends on a bang with the introduction of a Hoover robot and now all's forgiven. But the worst, I'm going to take the worst of the after school special legends is abominations. The civil war one, because okay. you cannot, 
you cannot juxtapose the horrors of slavery with zombie racists, uh, zombie racists, <laughs> zombie confederates, zombie racists. You can because we had to do it in uh, 2016. Uh, but uh, that one, I couldn't. We 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 couldn't strike the balance between them uh, between the two I, things. I don't remember. I don't think I've watched that episode since it came out, so I can't speak authoritatively to it. I have to rewatch yeah. it because I'm going to eventually get to the point where I'm talking to people who like wrote and directed it. Uh huh. A little right. behind the scenes of the book is right now the way that the book is laid out is I, I literally have separate chapters or at least they look like chapters for every single episode. And so I'll do these interviews and while I'm transcribing, I'll just in real time go and drop a quote into the appropriate episode. Mm-hmm. And so that way... I can see like, oh, hey, here's like a four episode stretch in season two that I haven't talked about yet. Let me make sure I get to that. Right. Um, the book itself is not going to be an episode guide. It's going to be more kind of generalized and like it is, you know, it's, it's an oral history. And I want to, I want to work through the the seven seasons, but I'm not going to like dot all my T's and cross all my I's and make sure that, uh, okay, I, I, even though I don't have anything really to say about it, I have to talk about Camelot 3000 just because it's an episode that exists. Right. Um, and I'm picking that one at random because it's literally the IMDb page that's in front of me, not because <laughs> I have anything to say about it. Um, but like, uh, as a result of that, it's like I, I have to, every so often I have to like go back through and just be like, I haven't watched this in five years. I have to make sure that I remember what this is before I go and ask like James Egan about it or something. Mm-hmm. You know? um, <clears throat> it all remains, it all remains delightfully charming, but there's a lot to have some fun with, which is the point yeah. of this podcast. Uh, we would point out stuff that we were like, eh, that you know, wasn't that great or whatever. It didn't mean we didn't love it or I, I didn't love it. Right. I just like you, 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 you goof I'm from New Jersey. You goof on the things you love and the oh, people sure. you love. I mean, that's, and I think too that uh, the idea that something being good makes it above criticism is a really bad uh, way to consume media. It really uh, is. It really it's is. It's like the, and again, not to crap on Marvel fans because I am a Marvel fan, but like it, it's like the people who get super upset every time some art film director says, hey, maybe Marvel movies aren't the best thing ever to happen in the history of the universe. Uh-huh. And they get all defensive and they get angry and they start picking apart the guy's filmography. It's like, oh, screw you. You made whatever. Screw you, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I'm just like, I'm just like, <laughs> man, just because you like something doesn't mean it's completely beyond reproach. That's an insane way to approach life. Like, and, and it also, honestly, I think that when you approach media like that, it creates this weird um, codependence. And then mm-hmm. when you start to not like it, there's a disproportionate backlash. Yes, and yes. It can make people immediately go from being a hardcore fan to an absolute nightmare audience. Uh, oh. I think you saw that on Arrow after season four. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that Arrow season four was good. It was my least favorite season of the show um but i think a lot of the stuff that was kind of bubbling up under the surface really coagulated after that season and you got a lot like season five was one of the best seasons 
not just in Arrow, but in the Arrowverse. Uh, it was a terrific season of television. And so many people were so pissed from season four that they completely missed it. Um, and and mm-hmm. so I think, I think that happens a lot. I think when people refuse to watch their shows or read their books or whatever critically, and you just go in and you're like, nope, it's perfect because I like it. Um, it, it it's like when what happens then when you don't like it anymore? Does that mean it's now the Antichrist? Uh, and that sounds like a ridiculous thing for me to say, but like as often as not, it seems like, yeah, that that's how people seem to think. <laughs> well, Russ, you told me to tell you when it sounded like you had needed some sleep. And now <laughs> we're comparing people who are like, you know what? I never went back after an hour after that magic bullshit to the fucking Antichrist. So that means <laughs> it's only time for one more thing. And that's how many Capones? Mr. Capone, it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. I canceled tickets to the opera because I heard there was new players in town. Oh, man. All right, let's go. This is the game we play on Gideon, guys, where we like to, you know, rate the performance of uh, our special guest actors who are playing real-life historical figures. This and is always dicey for me because I have to... I, I have to I, you have to be nice, talking. right? <laughs> yeah, you have to be nice. Don't try, don't, yeah, trust me, I I went middle of the road. Uh-huh. Middle of the road, okay? I, I, hey, I'm, not, I'm no piker. I, I know. I, 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 I realize who I'm talking to. I, I, I looked you up. We've got two. We got two. We got two that I, we never did because I didn't come up with the game until uh, after these two. Number one, season two, episode four, the aforementioned abominations with Confederate zombies. U.S. Uh, oh. Grant. U.S. Grant. Never General Grant. He was in that episode. I'll have to. I'm, I'm going to look him up right now because I'm yeah. sure that when I see this guy, I will be like, "Oh yeah, I remember something that he did." Yeah, oh, U.S. Yeah. Grant. He. Now this is always this is only just based on mustaches, wigs, and the performance on the show. <laughs> um, I will say that the, the first thing that strikes me is that uh, I always think of Grant as being heavier and older and, and drunker. So when you show me uh, this guy and you say Ulysses Grant, I'm like, I, I mean, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't uh, like. I said I haven't watched this episode in a long time. I do not remember. Okay. Uh, it's funny. Five, I five, five is the safe. Five is the safe. The safe. Component. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with five because I don't remember and I don't want to be overly nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say too, it's funny because uh, my wife, my wife enjoys these shows but does not religiously watch them. And so when I started working on the Legends book, she she's like, I want to watch Legends. I want to like have perspective for what you're talking about for next year. And uh, <laughs> which one did you show her? Well, well, she's we're working our way through the show. Oh, um, all right. But she, uh, she's like, she knows a little bit about like the the discourse around the show, and so she's like, where should we start? And I was like, uh, for sake of argument, let's say Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> oh, and so even though I just watched season two like a month ago, I missed this episode because this was before Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> oh well, you know what? Once again. The synchronicity uh, going on on this podcast, Russ, is uh-huh. just off the charts because 
Next up, George Lucas, Raiders of the Lost Art. Oh man, I I give this guy a solid like seven. Uh, I seven, think now that, seven's bad. Oh, oh that, sorry, so, uh, sorry, like a, a three then, like three. Uh-huh. He, okay, he's he's not uh, George Lucas in love, good, but <laughs> but I think he he nailed the the kind of nerdiness of pre-success George Lucas mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the interviews with him uh around the time of American Graffiti it's even it's it's much different even than the interviews around the time of Star Wars because he got a swagger once Star Wars the swagger, the swagger, like, yeah. once he was like a six like a bona fide success uh but if you look at back at like some of the the back matter that's on the blu-ray for american graffiti and stuff like that like he had a real nervous nerdy energy that i think they captured pretty well fantastic i also go three i would have gone two but that beard uh that 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 knocks that knocks the the knocks the the actual physical resemblance is not is not great but i think that they Mm, they it's it it's not the physical resemblance. It's the great, great history of bad beards and wigs on, <laughs> on Legends of Tomorrow. Now, if I was going to do general, Don't forget about Oliver Queen. Oh, oh, Oliver Queen. Okay. The, the Oliver Queen makeup oh in the 2046 episode on season one oh my God, might yeah. be the worst makeup I've ever seen on television. It's, Which is funny because I have that. I'm pointing as if you could see me. Uh, I have that statue behind me in a glass case along with um let's see brandon rouse as superman black lightning reverse flash ray palmer uh supergirl and batwoman <laughs> and, all right uh, you know what Oliver i have is bad oliver <laughs> oh it's bad oliver okay now look if i was gonna do a uh, how many compones just for wigs it'd be how many einsteins because Season two, episode one, that Einstein wig oh, man, might be the worst that. wig uh, on television history. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it could be. But you know what? This hasn't been the worst conversation I've ever had because, Russ, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much That's for great, your Jenny. time. I'm enjoying, like, it's funny because, like, doing press is ostensibly work, but uh, also it means that all week I just get to, like, talk to people about Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah, we talked about a lot more than Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, we got to talk about comic books, legends, everything going on. Remember, everybody out there, support Russ's uh, Kickstarter for the book. What's the name of the book again? Uh, Time to be Heroes, although if you look it up on Kickstarter, it just comes up as uh, a totally unofficial oral history of Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, there's only so much space that you can put on the subject matter for uh, or in the subject line for Kickstarter. And mm-hmm. I thought that it was more important that we got Legends of Tomorrow in there so people knew what the heck I was talking yes, about. Yes, that, that, yeah, uh, that's good marketing. One other thing that I should say, I started Please. to say this and then we got off on a tangent. I know that's surprising. Um, yeah, on the show, two hours of tangents. That's that's the Gideon guy's guarantee. <laughs> well, so for the uh, for the, the add-on stuff that I talked about where it's like the Bebo fur and the, the beer bottles and there's like... There's a children's book, which is called Mr. Rory Wants a Day Drink. I need that book, by the way. And uh, those things are all add-ons, which is, uh, if you haven't used Kickstarter before, it's actually, it's weird. Because if you know they're there and you want that thing, you go looking for it. It isn't there until you choose what book you want. Once you've chosen your kind of main course, 
then it gives you the opportunity to go in and pick your appetizer and your dessert, so to speak. Mm. Uh, and so like, if you go and you're like, man, I really want like that Bebo thing, or I really want the Mr. Rory wants that they drink, or I really want, you know, whatever. Um, just be aware. It's not that they aren't there. It's that you have to get to that part of the checkout. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's a, that's a weird, very salesmanly uh, note to end on, but. Uh, no, no, to- that's the point. Okay. Look, this has been fantastic. The whole point is to be, Let's get some money raised up for the hey legends fans out there. Look, we don't know if we're gonna get a season eight. We don't know if we're gonna get a movie. We don't know what we're gonna get. What you are gonna get is this book written by Russ Berlingame, my guest here on Gideon Guys. And, and I will say too, uh, if you read my Josie book, it's fairly straightforward. Like my tone is fairly straightforward. I try to be kind of aloof and journalistic about it. Uh the legends book, I'm a lot of that. None of that for legends. Yeah, I, I wanted it to feel like legends content. And so that, like, that, that means that, that means the it's a cliffhanger. Uh so uh, <laughs> uh well and, and and I will say there will probably be more booster gold than than there was in real legends because I am a, a certified booster gold expert. I have a book about booster gold, which is actually one of the add-ons on this. Nice. Um, nice. So uh uh Donald Faison did not talk to me for the Josie book, but I'm gonna I'm gonna get him this time. <laughs> oh, that'd be fantastic russ once again thank you so much for joining hey, me i can't wait to talk to you again hey gideon know. gang uh watch this space we'll see what's gonna happen actually i'll tell you what's gonna happen uh coming up in uh, about a week or so uh a very uh gideon guys special with me and uh the one and only pete schermacher bringing back uh uh our little partnership to talk about season three of star trek uh picard with a show we call Hard for Picard. Coming soon on the PWOM Podcast Network. Once again, Russ, thank you so much for joining me. This has been Absolutely wonderful. Like I said, I had, a, I had a great time. I'm super, super excited for this like book to come together and not just be a pile of unrelated interviews. And I'm, I'm really enjoying getting to like, shoot the shit about it and, and share some of the early anecdotes that I'm Well, thank you once again, and everyone, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.